By now, I'm sure you've heard about the Progressive Bitcoiners partnership with SunExchange, the solar cell leasing platform that is bringing solar power to businesses and communities in South Africa. It turns out signing up is incredibly easy, and having recently done so, I was excited to see that I could help fund their new project, which is providing solar energy to Group Constantia, South Africa's oldest winery. Why would a winery do this? Well, it's simple, to maintain their commitment to conservation while meeting the unique energy demands of a vineyard. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. With their new partnership, I'm hoping maybe we can earn bottles of wine back instead. But in the meantime, I'll take some sats. And lucky for you, progressive Bitcoiner listeners, get a free solar cell with their first purchase at thesunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner. People say, like, compare Bitcoin's energy usage to, to countries, you know, like Argentina or something, but they never compare it to the United States. And, you know, okay, don't compare it to China. Like, there's a million, billion people there. Fine. But com- why not compare it to the United States? It's one of the top energy users in the world, like, by massive amounts. Because if you think, like, Argentina only uses half a percent of electricity, of global electricity consumption, because you're comparing that to Bitcoin then who the hell is using 99.5%? It's not any of these little countries. It's not any, like, it's not. It's the United States, it's China, it's India. Like, and then China and India are each, you know, combined two, 2 billion people. United States, 350 million people. What is going on, right? So I think that we really have to check in on ourselves in the US and realize that maybe we're, we are really doing something wrong. Maybe we've gone too far in terms of our consumption levels and our consumerism. And we have to find ways to bring that back into, into check with, with the environment because it's really the, rich, the richest people who are doing the most harm. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Margo Paez, a physicist, climate activist, and fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Margo's passion and commitment to Bitcoin is quite evident as we discuss the New York bill aimed at proof-of-work mining, as well as her thoughts on Bitcoin and degrowth. And lastly, we cut to the heart of the matter as we talk about the normative value of Bitcoin. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Margo Paez. Margo, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoin Podcast. I finally have got you on the show and excited that you're here. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. I'm a little more rested this time, so hopefully this will be a more entertaining and useful conversation. <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, rested, I I just had uh, Graber oh. come in the mail here. Finally, going to read this. Um, is there a certificate of completion for finishing this thing? <laughs> Good lord! Uh, yeah, I think you can write to his widow Nika Dobrovsky, and maybe she'll send you a little art piece in the mail saying congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to to jump in. It looks uh, incredibly packed with with helpful information for, for what we're interested in. So, but speaking of packed with information, you have been on a roll here over the past year or so with the content that you're putting out. I don't know how you find time for it. 
uh, with the articles that you've written, the podcast that you've done, working for the Bitcoin Policy Institute, and oh, by the way, doing a PhD. Um, that may be a fair question to start out with, actually. How are how, how are you managing your, your time? <laughs> I always find that fascinating uh, to see how, how people are doing that. I, yeah. I mean, I... I think I work a lot. <laughs> I, I try to meet deadlines, which means that I do tend to work all day long. But right now, I, I have I do benefit sometimes from my advisor taking a little bit too much time to respond to me when I when I have like updates for him or he he's got something he wants me to do but he hasn't sent it to me so. Sometimes that gives me some some leeway in terms of my focus, but I am kind of I have this ability to be very hyper focused on on things that are interesting to me. So I I spent I can spend hours working on on something. I have very long term focus abilities, I guess you could say. So I uh, once I get into something, I kind of keep going until I reach a point of satisfaction and you know culminates into some like bigger understanding for myself and i guess bitcoin is just like one of those things that i'm very hyper focused with and it's mostly trying to balance that hyper focus uh, with my research but it's great at the same time because i've been able to do it from the perspective of my interests or concerns about climate change and i and i've said this before i completely changed my trajectory to work on issues around climate change so everything is connected but yeah it, it does take a, a lot of time and it, i don't really social, socialize very much i guess you could say except online i mean uh, that makes it easier in a way right. <laughs> I, I get my socializing on Twitter. Well, we're the, we're grateful to be the, the recipients <laughs> of your hyper-focused yeah. uh, efforts on Bitcoin. So, well, we could talk about a lot of things, but I, I think what you're, you're most recently written on uh, with regard to the New York moratorium uh, bill would be helpful uh, to start out with. You wrote a piece for uh, the Bitcoin Policy Institute on this moratorium, this New York State bill that is intended to limit proof-of-work cryptocurrency mining in the state of New York. Uh, I think it would be helpful for our listeners, uh, many who may not live in New York and be familiar with uh, the bill, to first kind of summarize what its intentions are and then move forward with the issues you take with its passage. Okay, yeah. So this moratorium has you know, it made its way through the two chambers in the state of New York in the Assembly and the State Senate uh, over the last year, 2021. And this bill, this moratorium bill, was all about or was inspired or the end result of a lot of pressure on a particular natural gas plant in upstate New York that is located right on the shores of Seneca Lake in a really small town, in a village, even like, you know, hard to comprehend that the U.S. actually has villages, but we do in upstate New York. So like, like these are like a couple of thousand people that live in this area. And this plant, the Greenwich Power Station used to be a coal plant, was decommissioned in 2011. 2014, it was bought off by a company called Atlas Holdings Investment Company. 
energy investment firm, I guess, and they decided we're going to turn this into a natural gas plant. And so from between 2014 and, and its final approval to be connected to uh, the grid in 2017, it was there, there was a lot of money put in and improvements and various permits were applied for and approved. So in 2017, they actually started sending that power to the grid. And they never really used more than, let's say, 20%, or, or they never really transmitted 20% of their full capacity, which, was, which is like around 110 megawatts. So they, they never operated at, at more than that. So they were not like getting their maximum return on their investment. So they decided, hey, there's this new thing called Bitcoin. And if I run it on my power plant, I'm not paying anyone for electricity. And I can get a really great return by mining Bitcoin and then selling it for dollars. So that's effectively what they did. They started experimenting with this a little bit in 2019. And then by 2020, you know, they were full-blown you know, installing the machines and, and running that. So they started off like, I don't know, like around 20%. And then they ended up moving to about 50% of their full capacity. So they were like around 40 to 50 megawatts of power, I think, um, by the end of 2021. And in that time, in that whole time period, from the moment that Atlas Holding bought this decommissioned coal plant and decided to revive it as a natural gas plant through today with the passing of this moratorium legislation and the recent denial of the air permits for Greenwich, environmentalist groups in the region, including smaller local community groups and the Sierra Club, were going after Greenwich. And in a lot of cases, rightfully so. I mean, you really have to give them credit to a certain degree that their concerns were valid about what was going on with Greenwich. And they felt a lot of times that the DEC was giving Greenwich uh, too much leeway in terms of what they, they could do. Like there were certain things that uh, they needed to, they need to do like certain repairs or an environmental study. And the DEC allowed them to put that off for like four or five years, something like that. There was some fencing that needed to be installed in the, in the intake ports from the water to, to keep out the fish and, and other aquatic life to protect them. And they didn't do that right away. So these environmentalist groups, you know, they, they went, they sued, they sued Greenwich a number of times, filed a number of complaints, but it wasn't really until they started mining Bitcoin that this thing really blew up. But it really blew up at the expense of Bitcoin. And it's unfortunate because I think that what happened was that in a cynical way, and it, maybe they, they weren't being cynical, maybe they really believed this, but in a way it comes across a little bit cynical, I think, that they didn't really care what happened to, to Bitcoin's image so long as it met their end goal of shutting down Greenwich. So a lot of the headlines came out were really extreme. They were blaming Bitcoin for increasing what appeared to be increasing temperatures of the lake water. 
uh, they were claiming that uh, Bitcoin was boiling the lake, that it was causing the death of the, the fish in the lake. And of course, there's no like actual evidence that this is true. In fact, there's other industrial sites along Seneca Lake uh, that have been there for quite a long time that news reports, local news reports suspected were also had been contributing to a certain degree to water quality issues. So all of a sudden, the narrative became that Bitcoin revived this coal plant and converted it to a natural gas plant. It was melting, you know, it was it was boiling the lake and all these horrible things, all for the sake of speculation. And that I think is where their approach, in my eyes, is a little derailed and, and a little dishonest from their initial concerns, which were definitely at least a certain degree valid, but they really pushed that narrative and probably saw, you know, like Bitcoin is a really hot topic, right, in the news. So they probably saw that as a really great opportunity to get attention. And it and it worked, except that the moratorium bill does not ban Greenwich from operating a Bitcoin mining facility. And that I think is also a really big problem in what happened. And even though these groups, you know, considered this a win, they were cheering. They're like, oh, yeah, this is great. We got this legislation. Back. That'll show those cryptocurrency miners. <laughs> like they really didn't get a win because the Greenwich lived on. It said that existing plants that had these co-located proof of work cryptocurrency mines would not be banned or included in the moratorium. Only new permits new air permits would be denied, outright denied, to those operations that plan to expand their capacity or new ones would be, if you wanted to bring a new type of uh, natural gas plus Bitcoin mining behind the meter setup, which is just to say like it's, you know, you're not plugging into a power outlet and drawing power from the grid behind the meters, like you're directly connected to the power generator. So that, that, uh, really to me wasn't really a win and it's only and it and like the other thing it's like it's just a two-year moratorium which you know is not really a win either but there's a the other thing is there's a, a a study an environmental study that is tied to that bill which is actually the details of that study are very good but in my my policy brief at bpi i i suggest a different bill that is a much more comprehensive look and, and would also include such an environmental study because the task force under that bill would include the chair of the DEC, or the commissioner, I mean, of the DEC. So there's no reason to, to think that you wouldn't get an equally comprehensive environmental study under that task force bill. So my policy brief really was just to point out the inconsistencies and also to, to show especially that not only did this bill not really live up to the original grievances of the environmental groups, it was also unnecessary because the power to stop Greenwich already existed with a previous law that was passed in 2019, which was this really uh, important climate act that passed through the state assembly and Senate and was signed into law and the grants power to the Department of Environmental Conservation, the ability to deny air permits under the federal 
Clean Air Act. So these are like Title V and Title IV air permits. So the DEC had already denied permits to two new natural gas plants in 2021. And one of those companies, I think it's called Dan Scammer Energy, they sued, I, I don't know if they sued the DEC directly or just sued, sued New York State. And, and it went to the to one of the Supreme Courts and it was in Orange County, New York Supreme Court. And they sued over what the DEC did by denying that permit. And the court sided with the DEC and said that this Climate Act from 2019 did in fact give them the authority, the power to deny the permits based off of what was outlined in that act, which was that the New York state has two goals uh, that they want to hit for decarbonization uh, below like 1990 levels. And so under those guidelines and, and some other scoping plan that is coming, that should be completed, I think maybe by the end of this year, they have the power to say, actually, you're in violation of this act. So you can't have these permits. We, we're going to deny them. So basically, like I argue, they already have this power. This legislation is unnecessary and they should just use the power under the Climate Act, as the DEC has done already, and deny the permits to Greenwich as they see fit. And there's no reason to have this legislation. So it kind of leaves you thinking like, okay, so why, why did they come up with this bill in the first place? Why did they specifically target cryptocurrency mining? And if you look into one of the biggest talking points that the, these environmentalist groups used and also the proponents of this bill was that if we don't do this, there are dozens of potential natural gas plants that could start mining Bitcoin and we would have this horrible environmental disaster. They have no evidence of this, first of all. The, the two sites that they cited in one of their letters were the, these two run by Beowa. Well, one was, one actually was built and the other one is still like, well, you know, maybe it, it'll be built. They're both in New York. But they were both data centers that would be built near the site of a decommissioned coal plant. So it was really like bringing in a new business that could make use of the facilities of that formerly existing coal plant. And it was not an effort to convert those coal plants to natural gas plants to run Bitcoin mining. So these, these data centers were operating off of the electrical grid. So that would be like front of the meter. And that was what they cited, or those two were what they cited as examples of future Bitcoin mining with natural gas. And of course, they, that's not what they're doing at all. And the the one that that it is operating over, it's like near near Niagara Falls, I think. That one, the energy mix that I read, that what I read in the news, of course, the energy mix there is ninety percent hydroelectric power. So. It doesn't really fit in with the narrative. So, it, you know, it's just seemed like this is unnecessarily targeting an industry, you know, that isn't really as nefarious as they make it out to be. And also, I think that they kind of lost sight 
of what they started with, which was that really they just don't want more natural gas plants. They don't want more fossil fuel plants. And that's that's fine. I mean, but they already have the power to regulate that. So it just seems like this evolved from like we just don't want more fossil fuels to Bitcoin is melting the planet. Bitcoin is boiling the lakes. You know, Bitcoin is just, you know, this horrible disaster and we just have to get rid of it. So th- that's about it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's most of it, I guess. It seems like a, a bit of a PR move trying to find a, a campaign win. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it was. And I mean, the environmental groups really saw it as a win. And then of course, unsurprisingly, and I wrote this in my brief and it, you know, I, saw this coming like weeks ahead of of it of the announcement that the DEC was very likely going to deny these air permits and it was even on the website it said that right now Greenwich is in violation of the of the climate act it's got a longer name but i i don't <laughs> i don't remember exactly it's like the climate leadership and community protection act i think something like that and so they're, they literally says, well, it's in violation of it. They haven't shown any reason why they should exist. So unless, so, so it's like on Greenwich to prove it. So, you know, this is well known. And I don't really understand why the politicians went along with this, why these uh, state Democrats went along with this, because it was mostly Democrats. Uh, knowing that they had passed this legislation in 2019 and knowing that the DEC was about ready to deny the permits anyway. And of course, there was controversy over the DEC permits because the environmentalists, and I think rightly so, I think they were right in saying this, that they were worried that the state of New York, the DEC, uh, was uh, politicizing this renewal of the air permits. like. So, so Greenwich gets approved for these air permits in like 2016, 2017, and then they expired in 2021. So they applied on time to have them reviewed. And so as a courtesy, the DEC said, all right, while we're reviewing this, you still have the right to run your operation until we make a final decision. So, so then what happened was they delayed the final decision because I think the decision was supposed to be like February or March, something like that. And they ended up delaying the DEC decision on these air permits until after the governor, Kathy Hochul's primary, which just happened last week, I think on the 28th of June. And the, you know, the environmental groups, they, they're like, this is being politicized. You're just delaying it because Governor Hochul has taken money from the cryptocurrency mining companies and all that's true. And, you know, I mean, it's true that she has taken, taken funds from, from the industry. So, you know, I mean, they, they're probably right. I mean, there's a lot of political games that go on and, you know, being former Bernie supporters, I think you and I know what that's like to see how the Democratic Party operates uh, as well. So we know that they're not above games like that either. So anyway, that's just my speculation. But yeah, so they waited. So she outright won her primary on the 28th. And then about three days later, DEC denied the permits. So as, as we had suspected, there was no reason for this moratorium bill because the, D, the bill is, has not been signed into law. It's sitting on the governor's desk and she has not made a decision on it yet. So 
what was the point of this legislation if all along the DEC was going to deny the permits? And because they denied the permit to Greenwich, on top of their denial of these other permits to natural gas plants that wanted to come online, plus like an existing plant that uh, was like, which is likely to go offline as well, because they're likely to get their permit denied and they don't mine Bitcoin. Uh, because of all of that, it seems really clear to me that, and it should be clear to other people that any new operation that wants to do behind the meter Bitcoin mining with natural gas in New York is going to be denied outright by the DEC anyway, because they've already shown that they can do it and they will do it. And the Supreme Court in New York has said they have every right to do it. So that's that thing. Did I get off off of your question? <laughs> no, no. And so your your ask is basically for the governor to not sign this moratorium, but then also consider the the study proposal, correct? Yeah. Yes, absolutely, Mark. I think that the governor should veto the legislation because it sends an, an inhospitable message to the mining industry, which is reportedly around 80% sustainably powered, which means that it's being powered with renewable and nuclear sources. It sends a bad message to them. And I think more importantly, it sends the wrong message to politicians in other states and even at the federal level because they see they see what happens in New York. And New York is not just any old state. It's a very populated state. And it's one of the big democratic states in the country or democratically led states in the country. Other states that are also democratically led and concerned about the climate, uh, they're going to see that and they're going to say, all right, there's some validity here. There's some truth to this stuff about Bitcoin. It's bad. And they banned it. So we don't want that in our states. So we should ban it too. And the environmentalist groups in those states also seeing this happen are also going to push that as well, I think, and say like, well, look, they did it in New York. We can do it in our state too. And that's really dangerous because the other thing that I mentioned in in the policy brief is that there is something called leakage or emission leakage. And that's also a violation of the the Climate Act, the CLCPA Act in, uh, in New York. Uh, which is if what you do to reduce emissions in the state of New York leads to increased emissions outside of the state of New York, then that is against the law because climate change is a global problem. So really what we're trying to do is reduce global emissions. So by just taking the emissions off our balance sheet in the state of New York and putting them on somebody else's balance sheet didn't actually reduce global emissions, right? It just reduced emissions in the state of New York. So if you send this message to the mining industry that they're not welcome in a state that is concerned about climate change and that is doing efforts to reduce emissions their only alternative to continue operating in the United States is going to be to operate in other states that are friendlier to, to Bitcoin mining or cryptocurrency mining. And that means that they're going to go where, 
you know, they're going to go to places like Kentucky or Wyoming where they or the legislators aren't serious about climate change, where they don't have such an incredibly powerful law like the Climate Act in in the state of New York, which is I, I mean, I read through it and it's it's a pretty impressive law for any state in the United States. I think even globally, I think it's a really an impressive climate change law. And that doesn't exist in, in these other states. I mean, Kentucky has passed the tax incentives uh, for to bring in cryptocurrency, industrial scale cryptocurrency mining or Bitcoin mining. And, you know, their their energy mix is not good and they're not really working towards reducing it. Right. So that's leakage. And that is really problematic if this bill passes, because it basically means that you're forcing Bitcoin to be a fossil fuel user intentionally instead of letting it find its way into the cheapest energy sources. And ultimately, that is going to be excess power and it's going to be in renewable. And and that is really, I think that's really my concern is that you're actually kind of, what, what these laws end up, could end up doing is a self-fulfilling prophecy of Bitcoin being the bad thing that we all thought it was, you know, that kind of thing. And the analogy I give is sort of like, although this I think is more unintentional, but it's kind of like when people talk about the NHS in England or any type of public, like social welfare type thing, like the NHS is just a really good example, but it's like, you know, you, you basically purposely undermine something that has a lot of potential to do good. And then you say, well, see, I told you there was no way that you could you could have something like this. You know, they did that to that to the national healthcare system in, in, in England, in the UK, and, and by, by cutting money and resources to it to basically say it was a failure, but it was you know, it's a purposely devised failure. And I think that Bitcoin mining could could suffer from that if a bill like this does pass because you ultimately can then just say well we told you it was going to be bad and look at it now it's just mining on false fuels but if the if the carbon leakage is a violation of the CLCPA mm-hmm. that's potentially a point of contention in litigation going forward if it were to pass would it not yeah uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, if the mining industry really, <laughs> really wanted to go after the state on this, I don't know that if they have the energy or desire to do this. I mean, I think that they could probably, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, my sister, is, but <laughs> I'm not, she could tell you. But I assume, I mean, it is in the 2019 climate law, it's very clear that you cannot have leakage. So you have to be really careful about how you go about doing this sort of thing, how you go about reducing emissions. It has to be very carefully considered. And I don't think that they've carefully considered this with this moratorium bill. And yeah, I'm, I think you could you could try arguing that. I don't see why not. The other thing that they did wrong in that bill was that they ill-defined you know, how proof of work works. You know, they said that that the miners validate transactions. They don't validate transactions. But that just shows you the really limited understanding that the legislators have and that their staffers have. And in a way, it's really troublesome, I think, Mark, because 
they're supposed to be representatives, right, of us. Like they're elected and this is their full-time job. <laughs> they're supposed to be doing all of the research. That's why they have all these staffers to find out, you know, what it is that they're trying to regulate and to understand it before they pass laws. But in both versions of this bill, in the state Senate and the, the state assembly, has this bad wording that minors validate transactions. So, I mean, it says a lot that they don't even understand the very basics of how Bitcoin mining works or how proof of work works. And that is concerning. And and I kind of think that they jumped at this just more on under pressure from the environmental groups and not really doing proper research on their own to see really if what the group, the environmentalist groups were say, saying made sense. So yeah, I mean, those two things are problematic. Like, I mean, maybe you could even argue in court, well, this is not even what Bitcoin does. <laughs> we don't, you know, our miners don't validate transactions. So what, what then, you know, lawyer, being a lawyer is all about these technical lang- language things, right? So right. I mentioned that in the, in the brief, like you could, this is a gray area. <laughs> I certainly don't envy the, the work of staffers, but yeah. getting a little bit of uh, an insight as to their job over the past few years as it relates to Bitcoin legislation, you know, it's like as a physician, if I were to take all my information from medical students and then not double check it myself, it, it seems like they're getting just incorrect information, too much of it, the inability to compile it in a concise uh, factual manner from from all sides. It, it seems like an, uh, a, a tremendous problem. Like I think in the in the general public, we have this idea that politicians are privy to all these details and information, and it's not true. It's that yeah. all this stuff is written by the staffers, um, and clearly we've seen a great deal of, of errors, which is frustrating and, and concerning, nonetheless. I was wondering. I know a few of these coal plants have come back online due to tax incentives and, and, and jobs. Is Greenage at all, is that a, at all a factor with Greenage? It's partly a factor. I mean, I, I mean it, it's a big factor in the sense that they were allowed to do this conversion, I think. The, the mayor of the town of Tory, and this is a little weird because I've never been there, so in my head I try to imagine exactly how these little towns are situated, but there's the town of Tory, and then there's this village Dresden. And I think technically Greenwich is in Dresden, but it's like all managed under the town of Tory. So the mayor of the town of Tory has been quoted a lot in the in the news articles around this going way back to you know Greenwich first coming online. And he, that guy is still the mayor. And throughout this, he's just been enthusiastic about Greenwich. And the reason is because, like many of these other towns that had coal plants that shut down, they lost a major source of their tax revenue. And there's, these are small towns, and they don't have like any other big companies that, that are based there to help them raise money for the things that they need, like infrastructure repairs or the school district or whatever. And so to have a natural gas plant come back and build there and knowing the amount of revenue that they would get from that. I think that the, at least the politicians in the town 
were really excited about it. I mean, the mayor definitely was. He thought it was great. And actually in 2021, because of the bull market and Greenwich operating at about half of its capacity of mining Bitcoin, the the mayor was like, this is great. We're going to get like $3 million in tax revenue. And that was going to be, and that's split up. They Greenwich made some sort of deal with the county, the town, and the and this local school district to have that tax re- tax revenue shared. I think like in previous years, they only had like, let's say 500,000, maybe like half a million in tax revenue. But in 2021, they were projected to have 3 million, around $3 million in tax revenue. That's massive. I mean, they were really excited because they're like, yeah, we're going to put this towards the school. We're going to make all of these renovations. We're going to do all sorts of stuff. I mean, that's what people really don't understand. And what really irks me about some of these environmentalist groups is that, yes, the environment is really important. And I absolutely agree. I mean, I've been in climate protests. I've led climate protests. I completely changed my life, my PhD to work on climate change. But at the same time, you cannot just go out there and make these demands without caring about the human lives that are affected by the decisions that come after that. And that's why we care about climate change, because of that very reason. But we've got, yeah. <laughs> but we've, we, we've got that in the here and now. We've got lives that we should care about right now and not deny those issues, not try to better understand how we can come to a better understanding, conclusion, compromise rather, uh, for those individuals who are going to suffer now, which, you know, to your point in what you've written about uh, previously is uh, also Bitcoin mining being able to use as a, a public good. So imagine you could add Bitcoin revenue on top of that $3 million. Maybe you said, you say that the Bitcoin revenue gets directed straight toward uh, environmental concerns and you got the three million dollars left over for everything else that you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's lots of possibilities. And I and I also mentioned that in my policy brief, it's just there's a section in there of policy recommendations. And one of them that I highlight is that you could actually use these facilities to fund the decommissioning of that facility or to fund the cleanup of natural gas or oil wells elsewhere in the state. So there's benefits. If you really think about it and you get creative and you can see that there's potential here to actually do some good. And that's not to excuse the fact that, yeah, they did ramp up to half capacity and they did increase their emissions at a time when the state is trying to reduce emissions. All that is true. But the key point is if you're not caring about what happens to the people who live in this town, who need the revenue and and the workers at these sites, then you're not really being a good environmentalist, I think, because you're really putting nature above humanity when really we need a balance between nature and humanity. Humanity should be a good steward for nature and should you know, make sure that we're living within our means of, of our natural resources and protecting them and allowing those to thrive, but one should not be at the expense of the other. And that's, that's what we see, obviously, as you so clearly pointed out with climate change, that, that what we've done thus far has been at the expense of nature and is now harming us, harming people now, but also in the future. Uh, but, but to be so, just so black and white about it, you're now, you know, you're, you're, you're still harming people, right? So 
we have to have a balance. Environmentalists have to have a balance. And I, I think part of it is maybe they're just not even thinking it through all the way. Like they don't, maybe they just don't realize what it, what the costs are uh, on human life. And that's the whole point of a just transition that that is part of, or that was part of this idea called the Green New Deal, which was really just an idea, which is the importance of a just transition. And again, in the Climate Act, the 2019 Climate Act that New York State passed, that the legislature passed, has a thing about a just transition. So if you want to do this right, you have to incorporate a just transition. And I don't think that these environmentalists are really thinking about the just transition. And these policy alternatives or recommendations, which are like, you can use this facility to de- not only decommission itself, but also be able to fund its replacement. That's a just transition. That's a much better option, especially considering the reality is that even though Greenwich is an eyesore for the community and it has increased its emissions, there's, it's still a very, very tiny percentage of the total natural gas emissions for that, for the state of New York, that if they could, if they would be willing to, to put up with it for a little bit longer and then use it to fund a replacement that would still bring tax revenue in for the community, I think that's a, that is a win-win because we do have other areas in which we can reduce emissions right now. So we have to just, I think we have to think more like, systematically look at the whole system and say, okay, where can we allow a little bit of emissions to happen, knowing that we have a program for that to go out? And then where can we now like tackle like the biggest emissions right away? So, you know, this is not an easy discussion to have and it's not, there's no like really good solution because we're, we totally screwed up. We screwed up our plan for, to, for doing this, you know, we should have been talking about all this stuff. We should have been doing this decarbonization stuff 20 years ago. And now we're in a position where we are out of time and we are stuck with facing the reality that the best that we can do, I think, is minimize the damage, not really outright stop it. And I, I don't know that people really understand that yet. But I, at least for myself, I think that that's where we're at. And it's not the, the brightest <laughs> picture, but I, I think that that is where we're at. Well, I think if anything would indicate the tendency for us to put off the future, it's been the past couple of years. You know, we, we didn't plan for a pandemic when we knew it was coming. We haven't planned for climate change when we know it's been ongoing and, and, and getting worse. And individually, we don't plan for the future, whether it is our own savings or our own health. And so this natural tendency to believe that the past will continue into the future and everything will be okay or we'll be able to, to fix it. And I think that's a deeply problematic situation that, that we always seem to find ourselves in. And I don't know, I think Bitcoin helps in the sense that it changes the incentives to bring some of that concern forward because people care about their incentives. They care about themselves in the here and now. Bitcoin provides a, a new monetary incentive, I believe, will help us be able to tackle these problems here and now rather than trying to stay at the, the money spigot for as long as we can and then try to tackle things. It's a hope. Yeah. We shall see. Yeah, I think you're right. Before we move on to degrowth, Margot, 
I want to touch on something that you mentioned during the spaces, the Twitter spaces uh, yesterday. And I'd say, I think it's an interesting uh, data point. You said that three times the amount of energy that we're currently using now will be needed to fully decarbonize the United States, the globe, presumably. What does that, what does that mean and, and how exactly are we going to get there? Yeah, so this is something that I learned from Saul Griffith, who is a really cool engineer and has written a book called Electrify. And basically, we need to, the idea is we need to electrify everything. And the most fundamental thing is like when you electrify things, it's way more energy efficient. So that's a bonus, right? You can reduce your energy usage through a certain amount of energy efficiency. So that's great. Let's electrify everything. And in order to do that, to electrify everything, we need to bring on a lot more energy resources onto the electrical grid. And so Saul, and I think others have, have come up with this number of three times the amount of energy needs to be put onto the electrical grid than what we have today because we have to accommodate all of that stuff that we don't have running on our electrical grid, like cars, stoves, uh, heating, whatever type of heating we do, anything that we we can take off of natural gas or from, from oil, that has to be replaced by something else on the grid. And we are not going to replace that with fossil fuels. So it has to be replaced with renewable energy or, or nuclear. Although right now, I don't see nuclear as playing a big role. Maybe in the future, there's a lot of political things around that and regulatory and just funding. There's a lot of funding problems with nuclear. So it's got to be renewable. Renewable is cheap. So that's just, just the reality. And that means, yeah, so three times as much. So that requires a massive amount of investment. And that's not just something that Saul Griffith came up with. I mean, the UN studies have said that we need massive investments. I mean, this this BP study that I was just looking at today also has a few slides on, on like how massive the investment has to be. And that money, the UN uh, estimated that 80% of that would come from the private sector. So how do you incentivize the private sector to invest in renewable energy, right? This is a, a capitalist economy. It's run off of profit. In, in particular, short-term profit thinking is the way it has operated for the last 40 years. So how do you convince them to take this risk? And more importantly, how do you minimize the risk for them? That's exactly my point that I was yeah. getting at earlier. Yeah, you said it very well. So one way to do that is, well, first of all, you have to like look at what are the various risks. And it's not, you know, there's different ones, but the ones that Bitcoin can help with have to do with uh, curtailment of energy or wasted energy or like what happens because there's too much congestion on the grid or not enough transmission lines. Or, you know, there's not, not enough power lines in order to be able to take that excess power from one region, like geographically, to another region that could could use that that extra power. So, I mean, that that will change in the future. But if you need the investment now, when those transmission lines aren't there, the interconnection lines or whatever, all the infrastructure to to make those connections aren't there, you're not going to get the investments now because that's not how investors work. 
they're not going to do anything altruistically, right? So you have to think of all of this. I think this is really the game changer is if you start thinking about the economy as a game. And I said game changer. So, but you know, literally think of it as a game. And, and once you start thinking of the economic system as a game and you think of it in terms of incentives and what are good incentives and what are bad incentives and how can you change those incentives, because those are the fundamental signals in the, in the economy, then you start realizing, okay, I need tools to change these incentives. If I can't force these incentives changed from the top down, that, that is through government regulations because the government can't work together is totally dysfunctional, which is the kind of situation we have in the United States. And I have to figure out how to do that from the bottom up. So I have to participate in the economy in a bottom up way to change the fundamental incentives. And there's very few tools that allow you to do that outside of Bitcoin, because Bitcoin really does change incentives in, a, in sort of like a game theoretical way. And I'm not a game theorist, so I'm not going to overstep on, on that or anything like that, because I know that there are game theorists out there listening who are like making notes and like, oh, Marco, she said that. <laughs> oh, minus 10 points, you know? So just a right. physicist. <laughs> but I mean, it is. I mean, if you, you know, I know just enough about Nash is the Nash equilibrium to see like, oh, okay. So the trick, the trick is to get selfish people to do things out of selfishness that also then benefit everybody else. Bitcoin mining is a great way to get people to be selfish for the benefit of everybody else. So if we can get like investors to see, well, actually, look, here's a really cool tool where you can make up that money that you, you wanted, but you can't get it because of, there's like all this unexpected curtailment that you didn't plan for when you were developing this project. Uh, why don't you just hook up, you know, a, a, a little facility, co-locate it next to your operation, your solar plant or whatever. And then divert some of that power to this mining operation. And it's very flexible. And you can, uh, you know, you can run it. And if you get in at the right time and like, let's, let's teach them how to, how to hedge this, this risk, you, you know, it's always great to enter in a bear market. Okay, well, let's, let's hedge that in terms of you know, the price of the mining equipment, you know, et cetera. And then you can, you can optimize that and you can figure out like, how much revenue you're going to get out of that and then and how long it's going to take you to pay off the equipment. And, and then you're still providing power to the electrical grid, right? Maybe you're, you're using like 20% or 10% of that power just for mining and the rest of it is still going to the grid, right? Let's say if like right now, the low hanging fruit are sites that are close to, to these transmission connections where they can already service the grid. Hopefully in the future, we'll see as this this sort of, this uh, symbiotic relationship matures, that we'll see mining operations moving in, uh, uh, bringing on new, completely new sources of renewable energy that are waiting for transmission lines. You know that would be really cool, but but I think that's still in the future. But for now, it's this low hanging fruit stuff, and so they're still able to service the grid. So they're able to to get back their investment faster by mining Bitcoin on the side while servicing the grid and everybody else and, and getting the, making the renewable energy transition work. And they're able to stay afloat uh, on their investments. And there was nothing selfless that they had to do about that. 
In fact, they just had to see dollar signs like, ooh, Bitcoin can make me money. And all I got to do is run these stupid machines. I don't have to hire anybody, whatever. I mean, that's great. Okay, so we have to think of it like this. And we have to just realize like we're not going to save ourselves. We don't have what it takes. And, and I say we, I'm like talking about, you know, more left type thinking people who want a revolution or, or want to do this anti, in an anti-capitalist way. Like even my most favorite anti-capitalist, David Harvey, is basically like, we don't have what it takes right now. So we do have to make some concessions. And, and Noam Chomsky, I asked Noam Chomsky, I told Chomsky, Professor Chomsky, what we're doing could very well save capitalism. I mean, this is a crisis for anybody on the left. I mean, how do you resolve this? And he said, yeah, it's not good, but we have no choice. It's either this or the end of humanity and all the other species on this planet. So there is no choice. You just have to work within the existing system. So wait, when did you get to chat with Chomsky? I emailed him. You can email Chomsky. <laughs> he'll, he'll respond to you. I was I, I, yeah, I emailed Chomsky. Like I, I got to speak to the guy before he dies. You know? <laughs> it's like the rite of passage for any, any you know, leftist, I think. Absolutely. There you go. And that's what he said. I knew he was going to say that because I've read his stuff on the Green New Deal. So, But anyway, like that's sort of where we're at. Like We have to figure out how to game the system in order to buy ourselves more time. And so, I mean, so that's really, that's really where I'm at. Like, I'm just trying to buy us more time. People can, people who don't agree with Bitcoin really don't understand. I think they're not yet where I'm at. In terms of seeing this big picture of our struggle to reduce emissions and and to to limit the worst catastrophes of climate change, I, I just don't think that they're yet at that stage that I'm at. Which is like I just I need to do everything I can to limit these to to keep us from falling off this this climate cliff, you know. And and if I have to game the system, I will try to game the system to buy us time. And that means that I need to use a tool like Bitcoin to do that, to game the system and to, and to, to basically play this game theory uh, with capitalists to get them to come around and make this renewable energy transition possible. Because it's quicker than holding out hope for the next politician to do it. Cause we've seen what the last 50 years has, has gotten us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my youth, my young adulthood has just been uh, a series of failures from politicians. I thought that they could take care of climate change once they just got past the climate denial stuff. And we effectively, the, the national discourse is now past climate denial. And it's really about how fast do we do this or how do we do this? But they're still not doing enough. They're not taking it seriously. And even within the own, de- you know, the Democratic Party, which is really sort of seen as the last hope politically to actually do anything on climate change, because the Republican Party really doesn't care. You know, they can't get their act together. They've got two politicians, Manchin and Cinema, who who are just happily enjoying all the media attention that they get, and and in return, they just block all possible efforts to do serious action on on the federal level. And as a result, the United States government has to find other ways to reduce emissions, like with the EPA. But then that just got overruled. 
in in the Supreme Court. So now the so now these like sort of last ditch efforts of like, well, let's do this through through our administrative powers, right under the EPA, like can't really do that. So so yeah, it's just like one failure after the other, and you just get to the point where it's like the the alternative was supposed to be government was supposed to take care of this, but government has has failed to take care of this. So we basically have to find a way to take care of this ourselves. And I just see Bitcoin as one way to do that. And the labor movement is just not there. It's just not, unfortunately. I mean, we're seeing great strides, but it's not there yet. Let's move to degrowth. You've written a lot on the parallels between what you see in the degrowth movement and Bitcoin. Can you first describe for us what degrowth means, what the degrowth movement is after and then we'll we'll get into the how you see them as Bitcoin and degrowth as kind of a part of the uh, the same movement. Yeah. Okay. So degrowth, degrowth is this big kind of umbrella idea. I mean, there's a big part of it that is economics derived, and it has sort of come out more, I think, within the academic world than let's say the grassroots world. But there's, of course, there's other movements out there that are outside of academia that very much go in parallel, I think, with the overall essence of degrowth, like permaculture, for example. And then if you go farther back, I think things like permaculture and degrowth really come out of the research that was done in the early 70s uh, that produced the book Limits to Growth. And that really, I think, that opened a lot of people's minds to this idea that actually the environment isn't this infinite reservoir of resources. And instead, it's something that has a limit and and we have to operate within those limits. And if we don't, we're going to end up with serious problems. And Limit to Growth, their modeling effectively predicted, I think, like a like some sort of societal collapse sometime later this, this century. And I think some, you know, I haven't read the book, so I don't, I can't really speak too much about the details, but I, I think there's been some of their, their analysis has been validated at least in the last decade or so. It was a very controversial book when it came out. I mean, it completely goes against all neoclassical concepts of economic growth for one thing. So, so yeah, so degrowth is effectively the reaction, I think, to economic growth. And so that's on the economic side of degrowth, which is which is really tied to something called ecological economics. But yeah, it's just basically saying like we have to live within the means of our natural resources. And our consumption pushes us to go past those means. And we have to therefore bring down our level of consumption in order to stay within the means of our environment. So it's, you know, it's like a systems ecological look at the world, which I mean, as a scientist makes a lot of sense to me. If you're gonna, you you can't just take a population out of its environment and then think that your analysis is going to be accurate. That's just not how it works. So deep growth is a response really to this concept of economic growth. And it really just says, look, you need to incorporate this other component, which is land or resources. And production is not just about 
labor and capital, but it's labor capital and 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 land. And really, like in classical economics, this was something that was understood. All of the the classical economists incorporated land into their understanding of what production was. They didn't separate it or they didn't try to merge it with capital. And because of that, people like John Stuart Mill, he was a classical economist, were able to extrapolate enough because in their understanding of what what was involved in production, that at some point you could go beyond your resources. So I believe it was it was Mill who came up with this who was like the first one to come up with an idea of a steady state economy, and and he, I mean he wasn't the only one during that time who who thought that, but but he took it I think he took it the furthest. But then neoclassical economics comes about and completely merges or removes land from the equation, kind of merges land in with capital in a sort of wishy washy way, and we stop thinking about resources as being part of the equation. And that becomes problematic because then there's these theories that come about neoclassical economics about economic growth, which ultimately require economic growth. The ultimately the requirements of economic growth are ultimately like continued growth in population and continue and with and continued use of resources in order to feel it. There's a, there is a component of neoclassical economic growth that looks at technical innovations, technological innovations as as another way to to push economic growth without population growth. But then if you look at there's like I forgot I forgot this one economist's name, but he's he's like the one who did the most recent work on economic growth theory and he won a Nobel Prize in the 80s, I think. And he sort of took it one step further and was like, R, looked at R&D, research and development and ideas. And if you take this concept a step further, then you kind of realize that in order to have like endless growth of ideas and new innovations to create these new, these new efficiencies, like you need more and more people to end up to, to be the, the innovators or the researchers. And it just ends up, it's sort of a ludicrous concept. And it's not really tied to anything that's really looks at at the way systems really work, like biological systems work and ecological systems work. And people are really sensitive to this topic of human growth. And this is a little going a little bit out, but I want I want to clarify that because they just start calling you a Malthusian. But it's not to say that we have to stop people from having babies, right? It's it's to say that. If you look at population dynamics, humans are not not special. Humans are just another animal. And if you look at population dynamics, there's always going to be a point in which the population steadies off and, and matches the, the available resources. And yes, humans can think and we are creative and we can come up with innovative solutions and we have created new efficiencies and new ways to produce more of, of what we need, but there's still a limit, right? There's always a limit. There's a speed limit for, for the speed of light built in to our fundamental laws of physics. There's the second law of thermodynamics. There's the conservation of energy. You know, there are these fundamental laws 
in which we can, we do hit a wall. So I think that's really the, the fundamental basis of the economic perspective of degrowth, which is like, we're just not really being scientific about what we're doing economically. And we're not like, we're not being realistic about the fact that we're not in a bubble. And as much as we like to think of ourselves as special because we're humans, we're still subject to the same ecological pressures that other species are. It's just that we're better at you know, building tools. And no doubt we can solve our problems because of our intelligence. But at the same time, we're not superheroes. So we have to be smart. We have to be smarter. And I think that's really all degrowth is about is, is being smarter about it, about, about the, our lifestyles and our consumption habits. And it's, it's not about stopping people from developing their societies. It's not about stopping energy poverty countries from having more energy. It's not about that at all. What it's saying is like people in the West, we like, we're ex- we use excessive amounts of power more than anybody else. And we should figure out like what of that excessive amount of power and energy we use is necessary. And a lot of it I think is not necessary. And part of it, you know, is consumerist culture. And there's a lot of other strains to co- that you could go down there about what, what the cause is. But, you know, it's like people say, like, compare Bitcoin's energy usage to, to countries you know, like Argentina or something. But they never compare it to the United States. And, you know, OK, don't compare it to China. Like There's a million, billion people there. Fine. But com- why not compare it to the United States? It's one of the top energy users in the world. Like by massive amounts because if you think like argentina only uses half a percent of electricity of global electricity consumption because you're comparing that to bitcoin then who the hell is using 99.5 percent it's not any of these little countries it's not any like it's not it's the united states it's china it's india like and then china and india are each you know combined two two billion people United States, 350 million people. What is going on? Right. So I think that we really have to check in on ourselves in the US and realize that maybe we're, we are really doing something wrong. Maybe we've gone too far in terms of our consumption levels and our consumerism. And we have to find ways to bring that back into, into check with, with the environment because it's really the rich. The richest people who are doing the most harm, and they're the ones who are accumulating the most wealth and the most goods and the most services. So, yeah, I think that's really all degrowth is about is just let's just check our, it's like Alex Klatsin says, let's just check our financial privilege because we have financial privilege out here in the West. (laughs) (laughs) And let's get that back in check. So how do you see Bitcoin as complementary to degrowth? Yeah, so I mean, again, like, check our financial privilege. And uh, Andrew Bailey had a great uh, take on fix the money, fix the world, which he said, well, I don't really ascribe to that, but I ascribe more to if you don't fix the money, you can't fix the world. And I think that's a really great way to, to look at that and to, to kind of turn that framing a little bit. because. We do have a money problem. We do have an economic system problem. And this endless 
amount of money printing that that can be done and all of the debt spending that that ha- that has happened i mean that has created incredible economic crises in in the west and it has also allowed for the expansion of capital into new markets in the developing world and because of that like since we came off of the gold exchange standard in 1971 there was this new opportunity to use treasuries to create a whole new monetary imperialism in which um, economist Michael Hudson outlines so eloquently in super imperialism and that allowed things like the IMF to rise to be to be powerful to create this to, to do dollarization and to basically you know enslave economically fragile developing countries through debt and all that is possible because of the dollar dollar hegemony so there there is a reckoning there that needs to happen i mean you need to end in this sort this imperialist behavior and the thing about imperialism and and wars is that countries generally need lots of money to fund war and if you look at the united states and you look at the various wars that it's been involved in while it was under the gold standard, you'll see that they had to go off of the gold standard in order to fund those wars. So you see an inflationary period during those times. And then they ha- then they would come back to the gold standard and then they'd have to like adjust the value and whatever to, to get back on. And I think that's a really significant point, which is if you if you want to wage war and you want to be imperialistic, you're actually kind of living outside of the means of of your system, I think. Your natural system, war is expensive. If there's any way to stop that, it's to have a, a money like Bitcoin that it has a fixed monetary cap, 21 million units of Bitcoin. And, and you can use that in, in a couple of ways to fit into keeping your economy in check. And of course, you you know, you had to remember that the economic system that how well it is doing is tied to GDP growth. And GDP growth, you know, looks at the production of goods and services, and, and that can just be anything. It could be war, it could be could be COVID, you know, like, oh, we did great, we sold all these vaccines and Oh, you know, we had all this GDP growth because we built all these bombs and we blew them up on some innocent people. You know, it could be a natural disaster that hit, and we had to spend all this money to re to rebuild, right? Like, I mean, it could, you know, it's not like anything that really assesses like really how a society is doing. It's just how much money was spent. You know, so you can find ways to, I think, inflate that. And I think if you're putting a lot of money into the economy just to inflate your GDP, you know, that's also creating more production and it's also going to be uh, an environmental concern, especially if you're doing it just arbitrarily. So you want to limit that. So you kind of need to, I think you kind of need to limit the amount of money you have available to be able to just play you know play with the you know the radio dial on on your money printing so bitcoin i think is a good way to limit that 
I also think that Bitcoin is a great way to measure other currencies, the value of other currencies. And I don't know, maybe that will be more likely once Bitcoin, the last Bitcoin is, is mined, you know, in a hundred years or more. But ultimately, you can think of Bitcoin as a ruler in, from which you can measure the goodness of your currency in which people can see, like, you know, whether or not you're abusing your currency or not. So I think, I mean, and that's that's like the John Nash ideal money idea, which is, I think is a pretty, of all of the hyper-Bitcoinization perspective is probably in a way, maybe the most realistic one. But, you know, it's like people need to know what's going on and you need a measuring tool. And and Bitcoin is a really good way to do that. And then you know, Bitcoin is great in terms of being able to democratize the control of currencies. And of course, Bitcoin is not controlled by anybody. And in deep growth, there's a lot of talk about debt money, and there's a lot of talk about local currencies and far well better versed economists out there who work on this stuff have written about it and and have looked at at how bad debt money ha- has been in terms of this like everlasting economic growth narrative. And they've called even for like a type of energy money. Uh, which is really interesting. And there's ways I think you could even do that with Bitcoin. And then with local currencies, I, I wrote a lot about local currencies and in particular a kind called Demirage, which is basically um, a currency where when it's in circulation, it expires. And in order to bring it back into circulation, you have to pay like a little tax or you pay for a stamp. I mean, before it was like a piece of paper with a little stamp that you'd have to put on and it would be a certain percentage of the total value of that that currency paper currency note and the idea there is to like to keep the money in circulation and you could do these local currencies which then uh, would would keep revenue or money within a particular region and encourage that so you would discourage exchanging that money out for another currency. And and in the experiments that have been done around this, like, for example, there was the one that happened in, in Germany uh, during the Great Depression. They actually backed it by, I think, like some Dutch marks, some, whatever the local currency, like the national currency was, they backed it by that. So you could do something like that with Bitcoin. Like if we have a Bitcoin standard, whatever that means. We have a Bitcoin standard. You could back that local currency with a certain amount of Bitcoin. And then you could create uh, this local currency on the network. And now you have a certain amount of transparency as well. So like your your democratic governance within that region where that currency is being used uh, can it w- has a lot better way to keep track of what's going on, you know, how much money is there. And it's... It also just makes it easy. Like you can be part of the digital age and you can have this this money, this local currency, and you can do it all with Bitcoin. You don't really need to ask for permission. And I think that's that that all fits in with with degrowth. You can do like an energy currency where you have a co-located Bitcoin mine with a new power plant that let's say a city paid for 
or somehow co-funded or whatever through energy bonds. This is the idea that Richard Dutwaith had, I believe that's how you say his last name, had, had mentioned in a paper. And it was like, you could fund this through energy bonds and you could basically like the community would buy up these energy bonds. And then later on, when the power plant was running, they could like exchange that like it was like a one to one with a certain amount of kilowatt hours. So then they could like use it to pay their bills or they could even use it as a local currency, but it was backed by energy. But you could like tie that in with Bitcoin, which is co-located there, which could then just like help help like invest in that in that energy resource. And you could you could then like have these these energy bond tokens with Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network, for example, and you already have all of the foundations, all of the, the, the framework, the infrastructure of, of a monetary network behind it that nobody else can touch, really. And, and I think that's really empowering for local communities. And, I, and that's, the, that's the avenue that I think is most interesting and why I like to incorporate or the degrowth lens into Bitcoin, because for me, it's like the best way to translate Bitcoin as a tool for for localism or for community development or grassroots governance or democratic governance at the local level and and also for bringing on resources uh, for those communities and we've seen examples already of this like for example there's a maritime museum in Alabama that is planning that like for a dollar this mining company is paying for space at the museum and then they're doing a profit share of like 20% or something. And the museum said all of that money that we get is just going to be reinvested into the museum. It's a fantastic idea. And you, you know, cities could do that. There's a city uh, in Texas that apparently is mining Bitcoin. There was like a big announcement with the Texas blockchain council a few months ago about that. And, you know, like the stuff that we talked about earlier about you, you know, using these existing co-located uh, fossil fuel Bitcoin mining plants to decommission themselves and to pay for it, right? That's another like way to empower the community through through a just transition, right? So there's all these opportunities to localize uh, your resources and your money using Bitcoin. So that I think that to me is where the intersection is interesting. Like and then in the you know in the community the Bitcoin space I guess you could call it there's a lot of talk about you know there's like an anti-consumerist strain in Bitcoin I would say and I think that also comes from the fact that you know there's a monetary cap and people are find that appealing but there really is and you know, people talk about permaculture a lot and and I think that all of that lines very well with with the degrowth movement. And Bitcoin, especially the community, is very much in support of localism and smaller communities. And I think all of that is really great because once you get to Bitcoin and you start getting into it, I think it just shows you the problems with centralization. You know, centralization of money is one thing, but centralization of power, centralization of government can be very problematic and things can get too big. It's possible for something to get too big. And so I'm much more in line with concepts of federations more than anything rather than a central power. So, and, and I think all of that lines up with degrowth as well. Something that I heard on a podcast that was sort of a degrowth tangential podcast and the speaker 
was saying that he and the person he was interviewing, they were looking at the energy input into bringing in food, you know, for, for us to consume versus the energy output. And what they found was like the net energy output was negative because there's way too much energy required to bring that food from where it's being grown to where you actually eat it. And it's like all the transportation costs, all of the like the money that's spent, I guess, on fertilizers or whatever. Like there's all sorts of things. And then they compared it to like having their own garden and growing their own food. And they realized like, wow, I have massive energy gains by having my food so local like this, literally in my backyard. So that's wasteful. Like that's energy wasteful. That has nothing to do with, you know, like the energy consumption of Bitcoin, but uh, it has everything to do with globalization and the exporting of certain types of production. And that becomes a massive problem. So, so localism pro Bitcoin, localism pro degrowth, <laughs> localism is, is a great idea. And it's pro climate change, pro the environment to, to do things at a local level. So all of that is, is Bitcoin. All of that is degrowth. And I, th- those are the areas where I see the greatest, the greatest overlap. And, and I think I'm hoping that more people will see that. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not really an expert on economics or anything or, or degrowth, but I see enough examples out of there to be able to, see the some the similar similarities with bitcoin and the ability to to create the things that degrowthers would like to see because you you need an economy right you have to figure out how to build that economy and bitcoin is one way to do that so why you know we need to make the most out of it that's just how i feel you've written i think eight or nine short articles on the idea and it's incredibly fascinating and I'll have it linked here in the show notes. Encourage everybody to read them and and share their views with you. The last thing I want to discuss though, Margo, is tangentially related to your Bitcoin versus the banks paper that you wrote for BPI, the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And again, the title was Bitcoin versus the banks, which is better for the planet. And you measure the uh, carbon emissions for the banking industry, which is 2 billion metric tons uh, in 2020, and then you compare that to Bitcoin, which is a fraction of that. Again, this is an article uh, on the Bitcoin Policy Institute website, and we'll encourage everybody to read it. But what you've found, what we all come to find when data like this, when statistics like this are brought forth to people who don't uh, like Bitcoin is ultimately it's not about the data. It's not about the energy usage. It's about whether or not that energy usage is going toward anything good. And in many people's opinion, Bitcoin is of no value. And therefore, any amount of energy going toward it uh, is not good, is not appropriate. So I know that this is also something that you touched on last night with uh, Troy Cross during the uh, Twitter spaces Uh, discussion, but I think it's an incredibly important one. And that is the idea of Bitcoin having value. 
and being able to meet people where they are in their understanding of Bitcoin and in turn being able to reframe it for them. What are your thoughts on how to best reframe Bitcoin for progressives? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, they don't see any value because in the United States, people are just saying like, oh, just hodl, hodl Bitcoin, invest your money and hold it. And that's pretty much the narrative. And it makes sense for the West because we have pretty good monetary system still, even though we have inflation now and there's definitely incredible economic stabilities going on. Dollar is still king and cash is king, they say right now. So, you know, dollars are still pretty solid. So in the U.S., like you don't really have to worry about hyperinflation. And for the most part, I mean, you don't really have to worry too much about the government confiscating your money, like from the bank, from your savings account, your checking account, right? So in the U.S., the the view is just they don't really see a, a use case unless you're like actually really in. You actually really get interested in the Bitcoin, and you see all of the like benefits, like. The, the philosophical reasons for, for, for holding or using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, right? They don't, they don't see that. They're just stuck because they don't really understand what is happening in other parts of the world where money is not as, as sound, which is kind of funny to say the dollar is sound, but, but you know, compared to relatively speaking, it's not as sound as the dollar or the euro. So for them, it's like the Alex Gladstein thing, which is financial privilege. And they see speculation, and there is speculation. There's an incredible speculation. I think Lawrence White, that's his name, he's an economist, he was asked about this. And the interview was like, interview was like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of speculation. And I mean, but if more people use it as a medium of exchange, would there be less speculation? And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, absolutely more people adopt it as a medium of exchange, you'll see less speculation that'll calm down. And uh, but then the interviewer was kind of like, well, isn't that like sort of like a chicken and an egg problem, right? Like you kind of need the speculation to, just to make it attractive to people to use. But then like how do you how do you switch between medium exchange and speculation? So yeah, so I mean if more people like saw that it could be used as a medium exchange, then there might be less speculation. But if people are like thwarted by that speculation, then they're not going to use it as a medium of exchange. Oh, that was the interviewer's point. So that was like the chicken and egg problem. But like if, if progressives were to, to see what was going on in other parts of the world and how Bitcoin has, has helped protesters, has helped people who live in, in under highly inflationary, uh, hyperinflationary environments where their governments have stolen their money, yeah, I think that they might change their tune but it's hard because this is such an emotionally charged topic now that it's not really easy for opponents of bitcoin to accept these narratives and i've i've showed you know these opponents of bitcoin you know people who are are ultimately like politically aligned with and and i tell them like like well here's a really great example where bitcoin is funding renewable energy and here's a really great example. And look, they're working with an indigenous population and, and they're actually going to help them get more electricity. Or like, look, here's what's going on 
in this other part of the world where they're using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange or at least as to store a little wealth that they have. And, you know, and then they're like, oh, well, yeah, but isn't it just awful that they have to use such a speculative asset to do this? It's like, okay, I'm telling you it's more than a speculative asset, but you're coming back to the fact that it's a speculative asset and therefore it's bad, even though you know that it's done some pretty good things. So it's just, it, it, I think it's just cognitive dissonance for a lot of people and, and people that I know who, who still go on uh, other podcasts and completely tear apart cryptocurrencies in general, but you know, really specifically Bitcoin. And, and they'll still do it despite everything I tell them. And this, is hap- this literally happened to me where a friend of mine, you know, you know, knows all the work that I'm doing. We've had lots of conversations about Bitcoin. And sometimes he actually pauses and says, wow. And yet he'll still go on a progressive podcast and just say like, oh, how, how bad it is. It's just, you know, tulip mania. It's just like some weird, something where people are, are just led to believe that if they, they do these investments, they'll be able to make all this money, you know, like it's just a Ponzi scheme type of an attitude. And, and it's like, I just told you like all this stuff. And I told you Bitcoin is not cryptocurrency. Like there's two different things. I mean, it is, I mean, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, but it's not like these other coins that you're seeing. And it's not these, these exchanges. It's not like FTX. It's not Kraken. It's not Coinbase, right? Those are different things. Have you asked this person how they can appreciate what you've told them yet go on a podcast and say the uh, exact opposite? Because they're just in their mind, it can only be tulip mania. I don't think that they can allow themselves room to accept that Bitcoin could be something more than that. I think it's just too much cognitive dissonance for them. It's too much. That's just how I see it. Unless they really at some point see something that really blows their mind and that they're like allowed to open their mind to it. I don't think that they will. I have one friend where that happened and it was because he said he read my essay, my four part essay about climate change and Bitcoin, the Hail, uh, financial Hail Mary for Bitcoin. And when he first read it, he was like, I don't understand why you're like with all these crypto bros and you know what, why you think this, that Bitcoin is going to save the planet or like save the world or something, which is not really what I said in that, that essay. It was not that at all. And then like the Russia invaded Ukraine. And then he saw how like a lot of people who were trying to escape were using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to do that. And he was like, you know, you were right. And I think it was that essay that you wrote that made me a little bit more open to it. But it takes stuff like that. I mean, I think I can just keep telling people over and over again, and they won't change their perspective until they see something with their own eyes that makes them realize, oh, okay, maybe there is something here. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people who are more open to that because they just don't know a lot about Bitcoin in general, but there are a lot in the progressive movement who are really stuck, I think. And I hope that, you know, that they change their mind because it's a real missed opportunity. And at some point I I feel like they're going to be like, oh, you know, you were right 10 years ago. (laughs) And now it's too late. (laughs) Sorry. And, And that's just how it's going to be. And it's really sad. You have to be incredibly curious to 
get into Bitcoin. You have to be incredibly curious to want to peel the, away the layers of your current thinking, right? And ask why and constantly question yourself as to why you hold the beliefs that you do. You know, and that comes from an individual looking at Bitcoin, but from a, you know, a friend situation or, or with somebody at the bar, you know, it really, in order to reframe something for somebody, you, you really need to understand what motivates them and what their worldview is. And a lot of times that reveals, you know, underlying motivations or belief systems that, you know, would run against what what Bitcoin stands for. And in turn, that's where the source of conflict is. It isn't a, a, a data point. It isn't a, an example or a story, but rather somebody believes that all, you know, problems must be solved, you know, from this top-down centralized manner uh, in very much the same democratic way that we have for decades. And that's just their belief system and nothing will go against that. And having that understanding, I think, allows a better way to approach an individual. And I'm speaking from a specific example where I had a friend like this who, who could not see outside of that way of change. And so the way I, I positioned it for this person was, was saying that while it's still entirely needed that we try to reform uh, institutions or, in, you know, in, in this case, try to elect leaders who we believe will will pass good uh, laws and regulations, that does not negate the possibility that we're also going to need new systems and new institutions to achieve the same goals. And something that was enough of a seed, I think, for this person to, again, spark that curiosity as to, okay, I get that, that perhaps old ways of doing things aren't always going to be the best. Perhaps there's a new system and then things kind of went from there. So to your point though, it is incredibly hard and we're doing what we can to, to try to, to bridge those gaps. I'm afraid that you're going to have a lot of angry people, maybe not uh, in the, in, in 10 years and, and not looking back and saying, oh, I, I wish I would have done more, but in fact, looking back and being upset uh, with us and uh, with Bitcoin, but I hope not, um, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I look, I, I'm vegan and I, I'm vegan for a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones is because I know from doing my own research, scientific research, and I wrote a paper about this, our livestock, our beef consumption, our livestock consumption is, is really high. And it leads to water contamination and water depletion at incredible scales in the United States and, and other parts of the world. And, and that water depletion is very destabilizing to the global food supply, the global food chain. And not only that, when you couple that with the effects of climate change, you really have a disaster on hand. And, and we are starting to see bits and pieces of this happening where we have like low crop yields and stuff and food supply, you know, supply chain issues. And we can expect to see more of that. And I, I've told people like, please, you know, just, you don't even have to be vegan, but you could eat less meat, you know, and I can't even get people to change their, their eating habits and they know why I do it. And they still like the most that, that they can say, it's like, Oh, are you offended if I eat meat in front of you? Like, that's the whole point of why I'm not eating meat, like, because I'm going to be offended if you do. Like, right. what is this? You know, so I've sort of, I sort of feel like you just need to start saying yes. 
Yeah, <laughs> maybe I should. I'm just too honest, you know. But it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't even people get people to change like like something like that, you know, as small as that. How am I going to get them to like change on other things, you know? And and this is all like make these little changes because of the climate or like I can get my mom to recycle more than plastic bottles because she says it's not, you know, she doesn't get paid enough from the recycling facility to again comes back to incentives you know yeah exactly so it's like okay people are just just treat them treat them like little programs you know like little game characters i guess i mean so i just yeah i think unfortunately people don't like don't want to change their behavior they're very comfortable with it and people have a really hard time imagining future consequences of their behaviors today. And that is why we're in a lot of the problems that we're in now. And yeah, I think down the line, people are going to be upset and they will be upset at Bitcoiners for a variety of reasons, but they'll also be upset because they didn't think seriously. They didn't take action now around climate change either. You know, and And it's going to be at a point where it's either... Either we figure out how to do this through the market, because that really is our only way in uh, without using the government, or or we don't. And the, all of like, the horrible things that we know could happen will happen. And people, when they get to that point, they're going to be like, oh, I wish that we had taken this more seriously. I wish that I had done something about this. I wish that I hadn't just like watched video games or played video games all day or whatever. you know. And it's really unfortunate, but I... I think that a lot of people are going to face that reality down the line. And it's not the most hopeful thing to end on, but for us who are in a different place psychologically and in our perspectives on the world, at least we know where we stand in terms of the struggle that we have, you know, not just in terms of the economic system or the monetary system, but also in terms of the climate and ecological crises as well. Like we have a lot on our plate to deal with and, we have to keep working towards our goals to, to fix those problems. And hopefully Bitcoin is, is a way to do that. So there, hope. Brought you back some hope, Mark. <laughs> I appreciate it, Margo. Well, we have to wrap things up there. Please tell the listeners where they can find you uh, as well as the BPI. Yeah, you can find me at the Bitcoin Policy Institute at, at their website, btcpolicy.org or on Twitter. I'm on there a little too regularly. I'm Jen Urso, so J-Y-N underscore U-R-S-O. That's that's my Twitter handle on, on Twitter. And if you're confused about that, just look up the film Rogue One. <laughs> look at the main character's name and they spell it with an E, I spell it with a U. That's the only difference, Jen Urso. And I, I screwed that up once, so <laughs> we'll have to cut, cut people some slack. So... Margo, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this is truly fascinating, and I hope to do it again soon. Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, and congratulations on your sponsorship. Thank you. It means a lot. Hey, don't forget to visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner to buy solar cells that will power the projects that inspire you. You'll earn monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years from the clean energy your solar cells generate, and the organizations you power gain access to affordable, reliable, clean energy. With SunExchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. 
Progressive Bitcoiner listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase. So get started at sunexchange.com backslash Progressive Bitcoiner. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.